Hello, you're listening to Renaissance Man, a podcast featuring my father, Philip Brunel, as he talks about the world of music. I suppose I could talk to my sister Elise about this, given her her role. But um, what's the financial model for an opera company? Like, again, at a high level, you're selling tickets to a performance. But I'm assuming that the the total of all those tickets doesn't pay for the production and the rehearsals and the maintenance between productions of things. I mean. Hundreds of years ago, it was paid because the king mm -hmm. liked it. So he just said, this money is coming out of the treasury. Mm -hmm. In today's world, no. No opera is self-supported in terms of ticket revenue. No concert is. It's the same. Yeah. And so therefore, because of that, uh, you need to figure out a budget. What are your costs in terms of singers? in terms of instrumentalists, in terms of publicity, uh, in terms of rights to a composer, mm -hmm. all kinds of things you have to figure out like that. Figure out a budget, get an idea of how much you hope you might make in ticket revenue, and then the rest of it is what you have to go out and fundraise. Yeah. So what role does a music director, you were the music director at Minnesota Opera, what, what role do you play in the business side of the company? Um, my role would have been uh, and was to, uh, in certain cases, go out and make calls on people when I knew them mm -hmm. or when I wanted to, to enthuse them about what the opera was that we were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and then you were involved just in the business of helping to figure out what was going to be the budget to make this opera work. Mm -hmm. You know, if you said you were going to do The Barber of Seville, okay, so then the manager would say, well, what are my costs? How big is the orchestra? How many rehearsals do you need? Mm -hmm. How many rehearsals does the cast have to have mm -hmm. for paying them by the week? Um, you know, all of those kind of questions. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're bringing in a soloist, what is that cost going to be? Plus, of course, bringing, taking care of hotel and food mm -hmm. and airplane. So all of those things, you, you became involved in those decisions. Huh. So as a, as a music director, you're doing a lot more than just the music side of it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So thinking about on the funding side, well, who, who funds opera? Who, what inspires an opera benefactor? I think it could be a number of things. It could be that they absolutely love the particular opera. It's their favorite opera, so they want to do that. Or there's a singer in the opera that is just their favorite singer, and they're doing it because I really want to see this person on stage. Mm -hmm. Or uh, I love the concept of what this company is doing, and I want to help support it in that general sense, not a specific opera, but in general for all that the opera companies do. So there's any number of reasons of why. Sometimes they even support it because they like the conductor. So all of those happen. Um, okay, so how do you then? How do you build an audience? I, I was talking a little bit with um, Michael Barone at most uh, of the public radio, and he said, you know. How do you balance audience conservatism 
with that desire to be innovative? It is a really big challenge. You, first of all, of course, you have to be totally committed to what you're doing. You have to totally believe that what you are doing is fantastic, that it will be a first-rate performance, and this is something they shouldn't miss. So you have to have that kind of, that total kind of commitment to mm. it. Then once you have that commitment to it, then going out and telling people, you have to have, sometimes find interesting ways to tweak their interest in coming to the opera. Mm -hmm. um, it, if it was an opera that they might know, you'd say, but I'll bet you're going to see something about this opera in a way you've never seen before. Mm. Ooh, well, that's interesting. Right. Or we'd love to have you come because so-and-so is coming in to sing this role and it's the only time you'll ever have to hear her sing this. Oh, I don't want to miss it. Right. So there's any number of things that you have to do to build the audience. Mm -hmm. Thinking of the business model, how important are our big name conductors and and, and it's, as Carrie John Franklin said, why don't you just have Renee Fleming singing every season? Yeah, right. <laughs> that would be, first of all, can you afford Renee Fleming? Yeah. That's number one. But also, her schedule would not allow her to be here because mm -hmm. opera rehearsals take weeks, not days. When she comes to sing for the Schubert Club, she's here for two days. Mm. Fine. And so she can move right on. But doing an opera means that you are involved probably up to a month of mm -hmm. rehearsals and then performances. Mm -hmm. um, so actually, um, what you want is, um, I mean, it's nice to have some big names, but it's also wonderful to build a community of singers. And, and the important thing is to make sure that the roles that you're asking a singer to do that this role is appropriate for that person, that they really can pull it off. If they can't, then you need to find someone else. If not local, then you need to bring someone in. Mm. Um, shifting gears a little bit, talking about, so I want to talk about how an opera company works, so sort of the day-to-day. -day. Can you give us a sense of, so we've decided on uh, Popea or something else. How does an opera get to the stage? from your perspective as a, as a music director? Well, it goes hand in hand with the rest of the staff because you can say, we've got this opera, you, you figure out a budget of what it's gonna cost to design a set, uh, to uh, figure out the weeks of rehearsal. You have to do all of that. Uh, you have to find uh, who do you want as the designer uh, to, and the design, will in most cases go along with the stage director mm -hmm. uh, and the stage director's concept. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if the stage director says, I really see uh, this Mozart opera being done as if it was in Harlem, mm -hmm. oh, then we need to find a, st um, a designer who can capture that that particular kind of idea right. in the set, in the costumes that they're going to wear, in the choreography, in the you know, all and of it. Does it and does it need? If there is a lot of dance, then you need someone to come in to do that. Mm -hmm. You've got the stage director, so you have you know those kind of elements. You have to figure out how you're going to do that. Where are you going to perform if right. you don't have a regular home? Where does it seem that this is going to work? Are the dates available? in the theater, I mean, 
All of those kinds of things are the first steps way before you start rehearsals. Then you find your singers, you get the music to them so that they come prepared at the beginning of the rehearsal. They then under, begin, after they know the music, mm -hmm. then uh, they also get to understand what's the concept mm -hmm. that's going to be staged. How does that work? They have to, of course, memorize it. So it's it's all of those things that become part of this of this process. And you said it could be a month. Uh, Once you start rehearsals, right? Yeah, but you'd be a year before, at wow. minimum, probably two years really? that you would have to, because if if someone's going to design a set, they're going to need you know a half year to figure out. What is this going to be? How do I make this work? Right. So, so on on average, if I go to see an opera tonight, that opera was was starting it uh, over a year ago. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. How do you decide on material? What what are the factors of, of picking a, a given piece? Uh, for me, it would all be about looking at the whole season and mm -hmm. what makes an interesting. Uh, diverse season of operas mm -hmm. um, and it could be that someone wants to do let's say you have a, 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 a librettist like Beaumarchais mm -hmm. so Beaumarchais wrote a number of operas so maybe you'd say oh this year we're going to do all operas based on Beaumarchais or another one you could say well we like to do one opera of Mozart from that period one from the 19th century and one from the 20th century. So it depends on your what philosophy your yeah, yeah. and what you're looking to have. And that can be, that's going to be totally up. Usually something that's a collaborative decision with the management, with the artistic staff, the director, the conductor, mm -hmm. everybody together thinking about what do we think the audience is interested in seeing and what are we interested in Producing. So, in the case of Minnesota Opera, it's you and Wesley and John, right? And in, and then of course going to the board, right, and saying, and saying we need you to vote that you agree with this. Right. I mean, yeah. But you also mentioned the timing of things. So I'm assuming that if you're planning on the 1971 season, you were plotting it out in '69, right? And some of it they had already started before I came on board. But it, but but as it leads in, so you're you're sort of almost you are putting a season together that's a year and a half, two years in the future. Absolutely. And so in some cases, you're trying to kind of predict culture. You are, and then also if you commission a piece, you don't know how it's gonna turn out. <laughs> so you're, mm -hmm. you're, you have to trust that you know what the composer is gonna give you, even if you don't know what every note's gonna sound like. Well, on that point, here's a question from Kerry John Franklin, a composer, uh, he, he writes, how can I get you, Philip, interested in producing my super wonderful opera? All the scores and parts are in order. Hey, do you think you could add it to next season's repertoire? Thanks, Carrie. <laughs> um, <laughs> it would be too late for next season. Yeah, yeah, right. We'd already, we would be looking at the year after. And I'm always interested in mm. looking at new pieces. I was back then, I looked at... Oh, I looked at dozens and dozens of operas, and there were operas I really wanted to do, but for one reason or another, maybe the orchestra was just too big to fit in the pit where we were, mm -hmm. or uh, it was an opera that I just thought, oh, it was fantastic. There was this opera of Anescu that I wanted to do, but it was just too huge. Mm -hmm. The cast was huge, the, and you know, so you, uh, and then sometimes you'd have an opera and you say, I really want to do this. 
but maybe it's really too esoteric. Um, and you also think about themes. Uh, you don't want every opera on the season to uh, be sort of the same theme, so you're trying to find some variety mm. that way. But I mean, I always was interested because you never knew when the next great opera might come your way. Yeah. Yeah, it might just pop up th this Absolutely. one. And, and I'm assuming it's a give and take where you might be really excited about uh, a score, but the director just can't see it. Absolutely, and vice versa. Yeah. 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 And so you, you have to kind of pitch back and forth Absolutely. to each other. Absolutely. All the time. All hmm. the time. Hmm. Um, yeah, so what are, what are those interactions? When you think about the... Um, the interactions, you know, you're you're at an opera company, and, and you'd mentioned it was a it was a part time job. So you were it, it, almost like a teacher. You, if I recall, you were there nine months out of the year, and then there was a period of time where right. the the opera company was sort of at rest, if you will. Or it wasn't. Ice. Yeah, it didn't operate in the summer except if we went on tour, mm -hmm. which we did sometimes. We went to Lake George Festival. Mm -hmm. We went to Kansas City. We went to San Francisco. So I mean, there were times when we also. Um, did summer work went on tour but the um, and you're doing typically you did what three four performances a season you mean operas yeah operas yes we would do we would do three or four perhaps mm -hmm. in a season uh -huh. and then we still had this opera studio so there were classes and we were doing work out in the community mm -hmm. as well you know yeah. right but I, I'm I'm thinking about the schedule of, of, of nine to ten months and the performances, so you've got about three months for each in terms of rehearsals and performances and kind of wrap up and then you're into the next one. Yep. Um, in, in the sort of the transitions of things and thinking about the, the operational business side of it, you know, uh, are you in, essentially, is it you're in your space only worrying about the music side of it and Wesley's over worrying about the, the, the acting and the set or how often are you talking to each other in, in, the, in the creation of an opera? Well, I was by myself with the coaching, and he mm. would be, but I would always <coughs> want to come and uh, observe rehearsals mm -hmm. as much as possible, partly to make sure that, that what was happening uh, on stage was something that physically... Uh, went with the singing itself. Mm -hmm. So you weren't asking somebody to stand on their head and sing. Right. I'm joking, yeah. but right. you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So you, so we wanted to work together as much as we can because, you know, a tempo of an aria can affect a great deal what you're asking them to do acting-wise. Mm -hmm. and, and, and then I'm assuming, you know, you don't want someone... Uh, running around like a bull on a set that's very delicate and so there's right. that the, the back and forth between the production designer and and if there's dancing involved and all of that yep absolutely absolutely so it, it sounds like very much as a communal group oriented totally. it had to be you had to really you had mm -hmm. to really trust and work together mm -hmm. so th thinking about you know the music director role at an opera company what was an what was an 8 hour day you know dur during the times that you were on how do you break up that time? Eight? No. <laughs> uh, okay, 14-hour day. Well, I mean, you know, I would be at the opera uh, in the morning, and say you got there at, you know, 8.30, mm -hmm. 9 o'clock. You were there. Um, there was never an average day. 
Uh, mm. Yes, you had rehearsals. You might have, say, a morning rehearsal, an afternoon, and an evening rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So there might be three different, with different people. Yeah. Um, and so you had, with a break in there, but you were also having to answer questions about the next opera coming up, looking at scores, coaching singers. Sometimes singers would come in and say, oh, I'm getting ready for an audition. Uh, can you come and coach me on this aria that I'm working on? So you had that going, plus going out to uh, visit people who you hoped might help fund the opera. Um, going to do radio appearances, I mean, mm -hmm. any number. So there was never a really typical kind of day, and rehearsals would go until 10 at night. And uh, the one thing that I kept absolutely sacred was rehearsals ended at 5 and stopped, I started again at 7. So I would always, on the dot, dot of 5, stop, say, see you, hop in the car, and come home to see my three children and walk in the door, put the phone in the drawer so that there couldn't be any calls and I was there for you guys to say, what's your day been like? How can I help? What's going on? And then at something like 6.35, see ya, off the door and I'd walk in just before seven o'clock. Yeah, I, I remember that those experiences and I, I also remember when I was in high school occasionally hanging out sure and, and the, the space on what was it on what, where was it Grand it, Avenue Grand Avenue in Victoria yeah. and it had been uh, it had been a big car dealership right and they cleaned out the grease pit and everything and, and we took it over and yeah. now it's a restaurant but but I remember hanging out and it was a very vibrant uh, you know, you had creative place where specialists, you know, Terry Saturn and other folks, building things. Oh yes, part and of it was building the sets. Part of it were coaching rooms. Part of it was the, and, yes. Part of yeah. it was the was the administrative side, and but, part was the big stage where we did all the stagings. Yeah, and you had your big, you, you know, you needed real estate to stage stuff. Exactly. You know? um, yeah, it just it see I. My memory was that it seemed like a very fun place to work. It was a fun place to work. I mm -hmm. mean, there were just great people all the way in the administration, you know, the mm -hmm. singers, in the costume shop, in the, the tech department. No, it was a great and wonderful time to be involved at Minnesota Opera. So when you're thinking about um, the role of a music director at an opera company, and, and you're talking about singers, specifically working with singers and instrumentalists. Um, uh, how do how, how do you come to meet new singers? Do they just set up an audition and come in and you go, oh, this person would be great for next season? Or uh, how do you handle someone saying, I'm a singer, I want to work for your opera company? Oh, it, they all had to audition. Yeah. Everyone had to audition. And so it was from that that you sort of judged their potential. Mm -hmm. But I guess my question is, um, if I'm a singer today and I want to go uh, be a part of Kansas City Opera or some the Met or whatever, mm -hmm. um, how do I get in touch with you? How do I decide what to, if you're a music director, how do I get you interested in me as a singer? Well, most companies have set times in which people can audition. Mm. So you'll find those times out and you go and sign up for one of the auditions. Yeah. If you know someone on the staff there, um, it certainly doesn't hurt that if you have a friend who knows a friend to have them say, hey, 
you're going to hear Lawrence today and he's really a wonderful person. Mm. Oh, I mean, it's the, the more information you know about yeah. someone, because they might sing and be fantastic, and as a person, be a real difficult person to deal with. Right. And you wouldn't know that necessarily. You, you might have a hunch just right. by meeting them. So, you know, the more information you have about the person, the better. Yeah, and, and what about instrumentalists? So how do you pick the, you know, you've got a, an orchestra with, 10, 20 instrumentalists, how do you pick the players? Um, well, if you've lived in a town for a while, you know who who's out there. Right. But normally it was to have a orchestra contractor mm -hmm. who knew who the players were so that when you were needing an orchestra of 15 or an orchestra of 35, uh, you could say, here are my needs. And you could say, and by the way, in addition to just the the opera itself, the part that is written for, let's say, the first trumpet is extremely high. Mm. Oh, so you want to make sure you have a player who's really comfortable playing up in the heights. Yeah, yeah. And is that, um, were you guys a union shop? Oh, yes. Okay, so Minnesota Opera was a union shop. Yep. So in addition to sort of, was that a factor to that impact how you handled well, it? Well, it, it, it would mean that you knew how long rehearsals could go. You paid for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. and But, you know, having had that same when I was in the orchestra, I understood how that all worked. Right. And I was always respectful of people's time that way because that's the way. I mean, there would be an occasion when you say, I need to pay for an extra half hour we're not quite ready with this new opera and we better, you know, so mm -hmm. then you just knew that you sometimes had to be flexible that way. So you're in that case, you're negotiating with the business manager to make sure that there are funds. That, we, that, that funds to pay for that, right. right. Here's a question. So, what's the di the music director role? What's the difference between being a music director here at Plymouth Church and being the music director at Minnesota Opera? Because you held the two roles simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Oh well, they're they're similar and they're not similar. I mean, in both, you have to make musical decisions that affect the place where you are working. So at the opera, you had the decisions which I mentioned earlier. At Plymouth Church, you 
worked with a different set of, of individuals and you had to select music for the Sunday service. That would be music for uh, the congregation. You had to figure out what the anthems were going to be. Did they relate to the Sunday coming up? Was it a special day? And of course, you had to choose this far in advance. Uh, you also then had to uh, know what were some special occasions that you had to plan for. And, and then if you had, as we do at Plymouth, you have other choirs, mm -hmm. children's choirs, handbells, you had to know who those people, you had to hire them and then be in touch to make sure that uh, the, the whole program was flowing and everything worked together. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's mostly logistics are the differences. Well, yes, in a way. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the pressure to produce quality is the same. Yeah. It needs to be. You, you know, I do not ever in life want someone to say, well, today it wasn't quite so good. No. You want it to be tops every day. Yeah. Um, so where, uh, let's, let's talk a little bit about um, inspiration and interpretation with regards to opera. Um, where, did, where do the ideas for an opera come from? Oh, it could come from anywhere. The, Transformations is an example. So I found Conrad Souza, but Wesley had a story that was written by Anne Sexton. It was mm -hmm. a book called Transformations, and he thought it would make a wonderful opera. Oh, let's find a composer. Mm -hmm. So we found Conrad, he read the book, he loved the book, and that's how we ended up having this great success with transformations. So it really depends a lot on, um, in terms of writing, in terms of finding an opera, mm -hmm. uh, it might be an opera that you've always known and you've wanted to produce and you need to find the right season to produce it and it works. Yeah. Um, well, you can, well, speaking of, of Conrad specifically, um, may he rest in peace, uh, you commissioned him numerous times. Yes. And he, he had a reputation as being, um, how do we say? Tardy. Uh, tardy. In, that would be the right word. In meeting his obligations. Oh, yes. Why, why keep going back? Because he was brilliant. Because he was an amazing, you, you had to believe that this man who could write melody and who could write, he could, he just had a great sense of putting his finger on the pulse of what a drama needed to be, what the music, and the music is so memorable. Even though as you started another project with him, you went, oh my, here we go again. And it was always the same. Last minute, but you just felt he was worth last minute. If you found somebody that wasn't last minute, yeah. you didn't go back to them. I mean, my, well, my own personal memory of, of Conrad are, are two, two points. One is uh, he came to the Twin Cities at some point, drove across the country in a black Mustang convertible, stayed at our house, and took my brother and I out on Highway 100, got the car up to about 100 miles an hour, uh, and said, don't tell your parents. 
Um, and I remember thinking, this is an opera composer driving a Mustang convertible at very high speed. You know, what a character. And I also remember he was a heck of a storyteller in oh, terms of just amazing and, and absurdly bizarre, crazy stories, but that children would just be at the edge of the seat like, Uncle Conrad, don't stop. And many of them were about the purple hot dog yes. who lived under the bleachers in a gymnasium. Yes, I, I have... I've tried for my own children to recreate the purple hot dog who lives under this, the seats of the gymnasium, and I, and I failed. Yeah, it was a, the the genius of 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 Conrad Souza. Um, and I was talking with a little bit with John Cranny about inspiration and interpretation, and he he was asking, do you think um, contemporary composers are are thinking of sources other than let's say like Shakespeare is sort of very common source for opera. Um, as well as dramatic and other non-dramatic literature. I mean, where do composers go to for uh, source material, for libretto? I think it depends a lot on how widely read they are mm -hmm. and how inquisitive they are. What are yeah. they looking for? I mean, Dominic Argento, an amazingly inquisitive guy who mm -hmm. found these uh, texts for his operas from all kinds mm -hmm. of unusual sources. And uh, I think you'll find that certain composers, they, they may take it from a book that they've read that they felt this could be the perfect opera, or it may be that it's something from the past that inspired them, or it may be that they, something that's brand new that maybe say it was an article in a magazine, and mm. they thought this is the genesis of a new opera. Hmm. And and, and but also as as a music director within an opera company, sometimes uh, it's about the interpretation. So totally. you as a company, you and the music director might say, "Hey, here is a, a piece by Minotti." But to your earlier example, let's set it in Harlem in you know mm -hmm. 1970. Right. Um, talk to me a little bit about an interpretation, and 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 how do you and, and a, an artistic director decide? Not only are we going to put on an opera that's been performed hundreds of times before, but we're going to twist it and do it in an interesting and new way. What, what motivates you to do that and how do you decide? It's usually, I mean, the stage director would have to have a kind of driving idea why he or she felt this was going to be, you know, an arresting way of looking at this and of hearing the music Mm -hmm. in a new way just because of the way it was set on stage. Could, couldn't you as the music director? Oh, I could, yeah. I could. But oftentimes it was the stage director mm -hmm. who, had, who had this idea. Right. Um, and, you know, and yet the music itself, you know, will, will change a bit depending on who the singer is, mm -hmm. depending on the situation. I remember when Aaron Copeland came here and he said to me that very first time, you know, we composers can only put down on t paper roughly what we want. We can't give you every little nuance, every little retard. We just hope that you feel the music and you know how you want to interpret it that best goes and honors what the composer has written. Hmm. I had a little email exchange with um, Eric Whitaker on mm -hmm. some of this stuff. And he, he asks, can you talk about the long, strange traditions 
of scores being performed in ways that are radically different from what's on the page. Uh, he said, you know, you see this especially in bel canto opera, you know, where the musicians will add rubato and runs and things like that. Where does where does that come from in the world? That's in terms of interpretation. Well, it really started in the 19th century. Of course, earlier in the time of say Handel, mm -hmm. you had arias, and then an aria. Uh, would have what we call a da capo, meaning you had sung the first part, you sung the second part, and then the first part was to be repeated. And the style back then was that when it repeats, you need to sing those principal notes, but add more notes to it, mm -hmm. to, which was basically to show off your virtuosity. Mm -hmm. And the, and singers, you know, the audience, if they knew the aria, mm -hmm. would you know, were thrilled to see what. How smart was this singer? How musical was this singer? Well, it's very and if you couldn't do that, that's okay. Then just sing it straight the second time. It's kind of like jazz in the sense that you play the melody right. and the idea or improvisation right. that you do with it. You play a hymn right. tune and then during the break, well, let's see what else we can do with this. Exactly. Now, when you got to the 19th century, this had just gotten a little, I mean, it got a little out of bounds. Mm. And so when you got into bel canto opera, it was, okay, I've written all these notes and the singer might say, you know, those are lovely notes, and I think I have some that would make it better. Mm. And, and then, uh, I mean, so that you'd come to a cadenza, you came to a point at which you were to do a little phrase. I mean, there are cadenzas that we read about in, the, say, the 1860s, mm -hmm. a cadenza. Usually that lasted, you know, say, 15, 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. There were cadenzas that lasted two minutes. You know, I mean, in other words, it totally threw the dramatic thrust of the mm -hmm. opera out of the window mm -hmm. because we suddenly, oh yeah, I'm about, I'm about to kill him. Mm -hmm. uh, before I do, allow me to do a two-minute cadenza. Right. And so by the time, oh, but oh, let's see, that's done. Wait, now wait. it's time to go back and make this happen. Where did I put that dagger? Right, exactly. <laughs> so what ended up happening is that when we got to the end of the 19th century, then composers are saying, enough, enough. We want you to only sing what I've written on the page. Mm. So it kind of came back, but that's where that whole period came from. And even today, so singers today, when they do those bel, those bel canto operas are encouraged. Oh, go ahead. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and some singers are really adept at doing it and doing it musically, and some singers don't have a clue. Feeling the rhythm of 
So we've talked about the past and we've talked about uh, kind of your comparison, comparing and contrasting of, of our, let's talk about the future. Um, what, what can opera lovers do here in the United States to sustain opera? As long as there are creative composers being born, there will be wonderful new operas composed. There are young people coming along who've just, you know, they'll find a new theme. They'll find a book that needs to be set. Mm -hmm. They'll find a new melody that needs to be written. And as long as we have creativity like that, the future of opera will stay bright. Well, okay, so John Cranny points out the obvious, which is Hamilton, right? So what impact might would you think that Hamilton might have on the world of traditional opera? And is it conceivable that we might see Hamilton at the Met one day? Interesting idea. Possible. Um, I think... Uh, Given the kind of rapid-fire uh, libretto and libretto of Hamilton, it's not as likely that that will happen because one of the things opera needs is what we call lyric expansion. Okay, you have to. Opera is just two things, uh, three things. It is what we call recitative, mm -hmm. which is where you get a lot of information there to, so that people understand. Why are you standing here when an hour ago you were out on that lake? Well, then you take that recitative and explain why you got to there. It's context setting. Context. Then you get to what we call the aria. The aria is never about that. The aria is a short amount of material in which you want to expand on some emotional theme. It might be to say, I love her. I love her. You know, do you know how much I love her? I really, really love her. Mm. I love her so much. You know, I mean, yeah. and so you don't go anywhere except you talk about that moment. Yeah. That You're is, expanding on an emotion. That's yeah. the lyric expansion. And then the third part of it would be if you have like a chorus, mm -hmm. then they add what we call the scenic environment to He it. loves her. He loves right, her. Right. Exactly. He really, really loves her. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. those are... And so I'm not sure that something mm -hmm. like Hamilton, mm -hmm. given the rapid-fire work, is going to do what opera really needs because you, you cannot just have recitative. You do need time, and some operas don't have much of that, and they're not really as successful. You need time. The mm -hmm. audience wants to bathe in beautiful sound. Yeah. That's what they want. They want to hear a voice that is so beautiful. They love the vulnerability of mm -hmm. the voice. And so they want to come and just hear, what's why they want to hear Renee Fleming? Mm -hmm. Because she sings and it's so beautiful. And she can spin a phrase, she can spin a line. Everybody go, oh my word. <laughs> I mean, that's what makes opera, opera. What's 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 the good of opera today? Where where are the uh, where are the great things happening in opera, in your opinion, today in the U.S. In the U.S., oh, there's a number of wonderful companies. I mean, of course, you have what I call standard opera places like right. the Met, right? Uh, and you need that. Yeah. Uh, the same thing happens in San Francisco. Though San Francisco also has commissioned a lot of new operas. Chicago Lyric Opera is another one. Houston Grand Opera 
is one. They're just, uh, and Dallas Opera, uh, just doing a new Jake Heggie Opera in December. Um, so there are a number of really terrific companies around the country. Then there are also smaller companies, like uh, the company up in uh, Cooperstown, New York, that works in, the, some of them just work in the summer. Mm, yeah. And so you have those kind of companies. Or Seattle, I mean, there are a number of places with, with opera companies. And then New York yeah. City itself has a lot of very small chamber opera companies that might do, say, I'm gonna make this up, they will do Traviata with a cast of six and a piano. Yeah. You know, yeah. so I mean, it, it, it goes all over the map. Yeah, yeah. Did you say that the the state of opera around the world is healthy? Is it on on the? I think it's healthy. I think it's always treacherous to see is the funding there for it, mm -hmm. because in certain countries it's only the funding comes from the government. Mm -hmm. So if the government suddenly decides not to fund it, they're going to have difficulty. Right. And in this country, you have wealthy patrons. But if suddenly a patron decides they don't like what's happening, and you know, a company could go under. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a fragile business. Yeah, opera is a fragile business. Well, if you had to do it all over again, you think about, you know, you were at the Minnesota Orchestra, you could have stayed there. You know, that could have been, you could have been an orchestral musician. Um, what would you do differently looking back at, you know, the, the center opera, min opera career, and, and you've conducted opera in Sweden and Germany and other places. What would you do differently, knowing what you know? Uh, I would still have left the orchestra yeah. because I wanted to conduct. And if you're an orchestra player, it's highly unlikely you're going to become conductor of that orchestra. Right. So I would have done that. Uh, as we said earlier, I'm very fortunate of having been in the right place at the right time. And so the experiences I had at Minnesota Opera were great. I loved the opportunities I've had to conduct in England and other parts mm -hmm. of the world. Uh, and of course, having had the opportunity to found something like Vocal Essence, and at the same time, to keep up my chops mm -hmm. as a player right. at Plymouth Church and being able to explore at the same time the sacred repertoire that you need at Plymouth with the wide repertoire of choral music that you do in a place like Vocal Essence, and then guest conduct, I'd be very happy to just repeat what I've done.